This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good evening, and welcome to the Human Nature series. My name is Sue Saxon, I'm a creative producer at the Australian Museum. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather tonight, the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present, as well as their continuing culture and contribution to the life of this city and region. The Australian Museum is in the midst of Project Discover, a transformative year-long renovation. So thank you for coming along with us and many thanks to the Anzac Memorial for their generous assistance. While the museum's important research work continues on site, our award-winning architects are creating a 57.5 million renovation, which will significantly expand the AM's public floor space and deliver a better experience for visitors, including a major new touring exhibition hall, new flexible education spaces, an expanded great hall, and more public amenities. So tonight marks the ultimate penultimate session in the 2019 Human Nature Talks, a collaboration with five major universities bringing leading academic scholars in environmental humanities from around Australia and the world to our audiences. Tonight, we're absolutely delighted to welcome Mark Carey of the University of Oregon, Canada, where he's Professor of History and Environmental Studies in the Clark Honors College and Director of the Environmental Studies Program. To introduce our prestigious guest, I'd like to call on Dr. Emily O'Gorman, who is Senior Lecturer in the Department of Geography and Planning at Macquarie University, where she also co-leads the Environmental Humanities Research Group. Please join me in welcoming Emily O'Gorman. Thanks, Emily. Thanks so much, Sue. So it's my pleasure this evening to introduce Professor Mark Kerry, who's one of the key international scholars undertaking interdisciplinary research on global environmental change. As Sue mentioned, Mark is a Professor of History and Environmental Studies in the Clark Honors College and Director of the Environmental Studies Program at the University of Oregon. His work and publications have won many awards, including the King Albert Mountain Award for his lifelong contribution to mountain research, conservation and local communities, and the Eleanor Melville Award for the best book on Latin American environmental history titled In the Shadow of Melting Glaciers, Climate Change and Andean Society. Mark's current research focusing on the human history of icebergs in the North Atlantic Ocean and the societal effects of changing ice on the West Antarctic Peninsula is funded by two National Science Foundation grants. He has served as a contributing author for several assessment reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He, lead, and he leads the Glacier Lab for the study of ice and society and is the co-founder and co-director of the Transdisciplinary Andean Research Network. Please join, join me in welcoming Mark. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Alrighty. Can you hear me okay? Great. Let me uh, move forward one slide. So I'm going to wander around a lot. I hope that's okay. Um, thank you very much, um, Sue, for doing all the organizing to get me here and get me into the room. My first time in Australia. I got here yesterday, so um, bear with me if I tip over or anything. Um, I also want to thank Emily for the invitation and lots and lots of coordinating um, and being here and getting to not only do this, but to talk more um, about our work and maybe some collaborations and some other things. So thank you very much. And thanks all of you for choosing to come here tonight to think about ice glaciers and icebergs and to do all that with me. Um, what I want to, I guess what I want to start with is to say that when I told people back in Oregon or at home or my family in particular that I was coming to Australia to speak about glaciers and icebergs, they said, why, why are you going there? That's, the, that's one place that doesn't have any ice, right? So why, why would you go there? And I quickly did some investigating and realized that, no, you have ice. At least on April 1st, 1978, if anybody uh, remembers, does anybody know this? Yes. Okay. So Dick Smith, 
uh, towed an iceberg into the harbor here. Um, the idea was to cut out little pieces of this iceberg and sell them as dixicles. Um, and uh, that was the idea behind it. Unfortunately, it started to rain and the, uh, the, the fire-stopping foam, right? This is the foam they used to put out fires and shaving cream started to melt. And his scheme or hoax still ranked as one of the top hoaxes in the world by some websites. Um, kind of fell apart here. But for him, he still got lots of attention, lots of credit. And I thought, well, this is a silly story, right? This is not a, this is not a real iceberg. And then I, th of course, and I'm not going to say that our icebergs are 100% in our imagination, or I'm not going to go down that kind of a road. I do believe that there is such a thing as real ice. Um, but I also thought, this is a pretty good entryway in to think about the kinds of things when I talk about politics, and as soon as you start talking about politics, you instantly start talking about money, um, and then culture, and the way we think about icebergs, and the way we think about glaciers, that the scheme here, the idea was it was a bold thing, of course, but it also captured people's imagination to start thinking about what is this, what's going on here, right? And so he used that in those ways, which is what I want to do tonight is to start thinking of multiple ways about ice um, to broaden our perspective on this. And th yet there's another way we could also think, not just Dick Smith and his April Fool's joke back in 1978, but at the exact same time, uh, late 1970s, there was many schemes going on um, around the world, particular Saudi Arabia, California, but then also ideas to import um, Antarctic icebergs into Perth to help with their water shortages there. And Ruth Morgan um, from Monash has uh, written a bit on this. Um, so her perspective is, is that this idea of bringing Antarctic ice here was partly to solve a water crisis, but it was also as a way to exert Australian influence in Antarctica as kind of an imperial endeavor in those ways as well. So, so there is some ice in Australia, after all, um, some icebergs that, that come through here. And I think those are important ways to start thinking about, um, about these issues. So I can veer from that and talk about a trip that I took, a research trip that I took this summer um, to Greenland. This is where there's definitely ice, um, lots of it. Um, both the icebergs in the water and the glaciers up in the mountains or on the ice sheet. Before I go any farther, though, I want to make sure. What is a, what is a glacier? I just want to make sure we're talking about the right thing here. So what's a, what is a glacier? Frozen river that moves slowly? Yeah? What else? That's it? What's it? Packed snow that turns to ice after it compresses? What did you say? Fresh water, exactly. That's an important thing. Uh, how about an iceberg? What's an iceberg? Yes. Right. So the key thing here with icebergs, when we're talking about those, is that this is not sea ice, which is sea ice is what just forms on the surface, which is salt water, right? Um, and that forms in those areas and stays there. But icebergs actually come from the, from the land, from these glaciers and these giant ice sheets. So, so this is uh, an important differentiation. Um, so this trip that I took this summer, we, I was part of a, of a group. I was, one of my colleagues was a literature scholar. Another one was a glaciologist who studies the glaciers. And another was an oceanographer who studies fjord ocean circulation. And we tried to look at icebergs was the idea from these four totally different disciplinary perspectives and have conversations about what they were. We did science out here, like we are doing a profile on this iceberg. We went to the National Archive. We went to museums. We talked to oil companies. We talked to hunters. We talked to all kinds of people to do all kinds of research. Um, we saw whales. It was beautiful, spectacular. Um, and it was a, this was my first time in, in Greenland. And I could go on here for tonight and show us lots and lots of kind of beautiful shots, stunning, um, I guess, eye candy, right? We could say, and we could lament the lost ice that's happening, and we could talk about how people in Greenland are suffering the consequences of climate change caused by a few corporations and companies elsewhere in the world. And we could, we could go through that story, right? You'd all be very familiar with that kind of a, of a presentation. That's not what we're going to have. If you're disappointed, I'm sorry. 
No, we'll, we'll see lots of things, but I, what I want to do is to enrich this conversation and think about glaciers in different ways, as I said. And so this entryway in of thinking about politics and culture and economics, too, um, resounds in, in many different ways. And, I, you know, at the, at the fundamental level, what I feel like is that we're talking lots about glaciers as the icon for climate change. And that's become a singular story of glaciers. So when I publish sometimes or write something, even if I'm not talking about climate change, just mentioning glaciers, everybody assumes it's a climate change story. That's how much the climate change angle has kind of co-opted ice in the world. And as a result of that, we miss all kinds of other stories. We miss how people all over the world are actually interacting with ice. That means I'm also trying to put the humanity into ice and understand how people in different parts of the world, so we're kind of going to sweep all over the world today and not focus in on one space really deep, but touch on lots of different things and move around and think about things. And also to shift then, if we're talking about politics, I think the main way when we think about ice, we then instantly jump to climate, and then we instantly jump to global emissions, the Paris Accord, some countries who don't want to get onto that, right? And so we think of politics at this very global scale about regulating things. What I also want to do is pull our politics down to a local level. So I want to shift the scale that we're talking about and get down to the everyday, to regional, to within nations, to local scales and, and things like that. So that's the, what I wanted to do. And what I thought for a structure to do this, because I wasn't quite sure, and then I thought, you know, I was in Greenland for two and a half weeks. And while I was in Greenland for two and a half weeks, a lot happened internationally around ice. It was five different, among many others, but there was five different things that came out related to Greenland, and one is about Iceland, which I had to go through to get to back and forth from Greenland. So there's five different things that happened about ice in Greenland while I was there. So what I want to use tonight, I'm going to talk about those five different examples of some news that broke internationally about Greenland glaciers, and then kind of dissect those and talk about those and build on my experiences over time um, in Newfoundland, looking at icebergs, in Peru, looking at glaciers, in Greenland this summer, and just think more richly about all those different things. So, first, late, it was like July 30th, 31st, something like that, news was breaking everywhere that the heat wave that was in Europe was moving to Greenland and we were gonna have the biggest destruction of ice on any given day or in every given month or in any given year that we've ever had. And we probably all know that Greenland is pretty significant amount of ice, and if all the ice in Greenland melts, then that's going to increase sea level by seven meters, I believe is the amount. So um, this would be catastrophic. It's also bad for people's lives there and livelihoods. Um, so there was lots of news about this. A lot of the news, like in the Atlantic, had these stunning pictures of what looks like the melting ice sheet, rivers on top of it, of icebergs. And what struck me thinking about about these is, well, this is this kind of scenery that I was just talking about, right? In terms of this eye candy that we want to see, we're pulled into this. We're thinking about Greenland and it's melting. Um, we don't get much of a sense of the locals that are going on, and there was not many articles. One uh, particular thread that emerged in so many of those was to think about how the local people are suffering, right? These are victims of, of climate change. I don't want to say that that's not happening. I don't want to say that Greenland wasn't really warm. It was hot when I was there. It was kind of stunningly hot. Black flies were everywhere. It was annoying. Um, people are having to change, but it was a different kind of approach. I was, there was a journalist who kept emailing me saying, can you tell me a local person who can give me a story of how they're suffering with climate change and melting ice? I'm like, why don't you go and ask them what their experience is first instead of just being fed a quote. And so there's this, there's a bit of a, I don't know, I would say a trope or a trend in the media that was there um, and how they were discovering this and how they were thinking about the ice there. Now, I, I don't want to say that our approach was the best um, by any means, but what, one of the things that we were trying to do was to actually talk with people and visit with people and get their stories first. Here we are in the two of my colleagues here with the archivist at the National Archives. So we were trying to understand what else um, people there had thought about the ice historically and what they were saying about it. We talked to, as I mentioned, we talked to fishermen, fisher people, talked to hunters, we talked to all kinds of people who are working in these areas to get their stories. And what was interesting 
is most of them didn't really care that much about the climate change. And in fact, I would say, and I am definitely not a denialist of these kind of things, I definitely think climate is a serious issue, but I found it very surprising that so many people were happy that there was going to be maybe less ice or fewer icebergs out in the way or new lands that were opening up that was giving them some economic opportunities. Now, if you think globally, that doesn't, that's still scary, right, of how much ice is being lost um, and what's causing that and what's driving it. But if you think on a regional scale or a local scale, you start to get into some different dynamics of what people were saying about that. Um, we talked to this, it's hard to see in here, but that's a, um, down in there, there's a boat in there. This is one of the sealers. And so we talked to a lot of the sealers who were out in the fjords, just zooming through the ice. It was incredible the way they would just move along. Like, they, they I don't know. I see this and it sounds, it seems scary to me and they just move through that um, going right along. Of course, they've been doing it forever, so it was no big deal for them. Um, but they were, I asked about this, does it, does it matter for your hunting? Does it matter for the seals? And sometimes, yes. Um, there's no doubt that sometimes it could be trickier. It could be harder to get into the fjords. Um, if there was an event that created lots of icebergs um, and there was more ice choking it full, um, but they were much more concerned about their longer-term livelihoods, it seemed like, than they were about the ice in a lot of ways. Um, so, so in asking them just broader questions, we had different answers than we might have gotten if we went in asking specifically about climate change things. I also tried to understand people in their own dynamics, in their own situation, in their own context for how they were living with icebergs and, for, and the glaciers that are nearby. Um, one of the things when we would ask of... What's the, what's the big problem, would you say, in your local community? They wouldn't talk about climate change, they would talk about domestic violence, right? That was the biggest issue in a lot of places. This town, Tasilak, um, they sell no hard alcohol there. It's only beer um, that goes at, what is it, 2.2% or something, I mean, incredibly, that's not even a beer, right? Um, so. Anyways, they have tremendous problems with, with those issues, and so that's what was much, much more on their mind in terms of things to really resolve and to try to, try to work through. This is a museum in Nuuk in the capital where we went in, and the, the curator here in the art museum said, actually point blank, of, I'm fed up with foreigners coming to Greenland to ask about our ice. We have so many other issues, there's so many things going on, the art field is so rich, and yet, if you're a foreigner, what you want to focus on is ice. So she had actually made a whole room in the museum that depicted on one wall, it was kind of the colonial stories of these big, majestic icebergs, and on the other room, Greenlanders um, with their own art of the area, in which ice was never in the foreground, really. It was maybe something there, or it was often there, but it was blended in. It was part of their life, not the big thing that we should have, ooh, wow, ah, and right over that. And so it just showed me a very different angle of what was going on if you start asking different questions. And her outrage about people coming to Greenland to ask about it, I think, is an important part of the politics of whose voice is speaking globally for ICE and what does that mean. And when we have a heat wave or when we're talking about climate, I think that's really magnified. So let me jump uh, abruptly in a way, but this all happened while I was in Greenland, while I was emailing with people in Peru and about Peru, because a big incident happened right at the very end of July and the very beginning of, um, of August in, uh, in Peru, and this is in the Cordillera Blanca of Mount Huascaran, which is where I've done work for almost two decades now. So there was a team of ice corers, and probably people know about ice coring, right? You, can drill into a, into a glacier or an ice sheet, and you pull out the cores, and you can look at each annual layer that's in there and extract past records of the atmosphere and past climate and information and things like that, right? So Lonnie Thompson, who had, in the early 1990s, drilled another core from Huascaran, he was back there to drill another ice core. Problem was, is after several days, I think almost two weeks actually, of being near the summit, doing this, suddenly people down in the valley below started to get very restless, extremely restless, um, feeling like they didn't have the right permissions to be up there. And then the rumors and information started circulating in town that they, were, they didn't 
they, they didn't care about the climate kind of things. They thought that they were actually up there exploring for minerals, part of the mining companies, because this is a Cordillera Blanca has, has exploded in mining rights in recent years. Um, and so they thought, or at least they said, that they were thinking that this was about mining and that they were actually just using climate as an excuse to go up there, and it really wasn't that. And so it ended up being quite a, a big scene. There was a local Facebook group that got going. There was marches. There was protests. In the end, Lonnie Thompson and his group of about 15 researchers, climate scientists, they had to leave. They were flown off the top of the mountain. They couldn't even go through this community to get out because they were worried that they would be kidnapped. That's happened. 15 years ago. It happened right before I got to Peru the first time in 2000. I was warned in the same area, don't go up to the mountains. You'll be confused as a hydroelectric engineer and you might be kidnapped or worse. So don't go up into these certain valleys right where Lonnie Thompson was. In the end, he, had to, he was flown out. They were able to get back. They did a lot of negotiating. There was the president of the country was involved. The Peruvian president was involved trying to help negotiate things. But this, I think, is a good example of where Lonnie, who's he's a, an amazing ice core scientist who's collected ice cores all over the world, um, what he did is he saw the issue here as a climate problem, right? And he came in to address that. And he saw local people as needing to get some support, but uh, I would say it was more of a check the box, like talk to some locals, but not the right locals, didn't understand the local politics that well. Um, didn't make an effort. There was no anthropologists on this team. There was no sociologists. There was no local NGOs. There was nothing like that. Um, and as a result of that, it was this tremendous collision. And so here's the idea of where you see this, we're back to the heat wave, right, that I opened this with in Greenland. If you per present and portray an area just in this climate change way, then you miss all the other things. So for these local people, they carried about, carried, cared, they cared about multinational corporations in their area. They cared about who had authority to tap the mountains. They cared about the local politics and who was maybe benefiting and who wasn't. And then that had a tremendous collision with the science that was being done in that area. Now, just two years ago, there was a dangerous glacial lake, creatively named Lake 513. That's just the number it came out in the inventory in the 1980s when it was formed. Um, it's a dangerous lake. It um, had an outburst flood. It's a, the glacier used to come down into the valley. The glacier shrunk and left a, a lake in that space that used to be ice, right? And it's kind of unstable, so it caused an outburst flood. Um, so what the community, and with help from a Swiss NGO and the Swiss um, um, Agency for International Development, uh, the, what they did is they put in an early warning system. Sounds great, right? Outburst floods from these glacial lakes actually move fairly slow, maybe only 20, 30 kilometers an hour, which you can't outrun, but if it starts 25 kilometers away from your community, you actually have time to have a, uh, a sandwich before you evacuate and still get out of the way. So that's it's quite a bit of time. It's not like an earthquake that's boom, right? So, but they put this in. They thought they went through all the right protocols. They had local meetings and local community involvement, but then, not that long ago, two years ago, this happened. The, a different local community than they had worked with went to this area and destroyed. They dismantled the entire early warning system, took it down, here it is in pieces. And they said, we don't care about this. This is not our main risk. Why is this up here? Actually, this conflicts with our cultural values about having technology high up on the mountains. There had been another weather station put in here 15 years earlier, 20 years earlier, 1998. 20 years ago, geez. Um, and they thought it caused a drought by having this technology up on the mountain. So they took it and dismantled it and took it away. And sure enough, it started raining the next day and they were out of their drought. Um, this isn't just some superstition that happened to be right there. This is about trying to understand local values and cultures and how they see spaces and how they see glaciers and how they see high mountains and the issues that are there. And, uh, and what I would say is a lesson from this is, we have to think more broadly. Climate, of course, matters, but we have to also try to get a sense of these different on-the-ground types of issues and really weigh how different communities think and worry about these different issues. So be careful, I would say, is the takeaway is make sure we're careful in the way we're talking about climate and local impacts to understand that local dynamics way better.
So another thing, the scientists as explorers and how this gets often portrayed. There was a journalist who was part of our group here um, on the boat that we were on while we were out there, um, who after it was done wrote for the journal Science this amazing story. And so he spent quite a bit of time on this boat that, that we were on, Alfred Jensen, back in the fjords doing this research, collecting things. Our group was also up flying in helicopters up to look at the icebergs and the glaciers, like that's Jakobshaven. Um, to get a different perspective on things, and we even landed on these, and this is, the, this is not me, that's for sure, I'm strapped in, but Kristen, the glaciologist, would hop out um, and actually plant uh, GPS units on these icebergs, um, and we'd hover in these areas, and then she would drop a probe down to the bottom of the fjord, 800 meters deep in some places, to study these pretty incredible uh, kind of stuff um, that she was doing. Um, high adrenaline, high risk, it felt to me. I'm not somebody who spends any time in helicopters, so hovering um, with icebergs that are 50, 30 meters higher than we are with the gusting that's going on, it all sounds a bit crazy to me, and I was very happy to be back off that helicopter. Um, but this is the exact stuff of drama that I think we hear lots about. So often what we hear is not local stories about people, but we hear, I would, what I would say is we've kind of replaced the old um, heroic explorer of Antarctica and the high mountain mountaineer and the Arctic area, and we've replaced that with scientists who are doing that, and that's what gets written about. And this is vital to do, but it's also, I think, problematic in terms of which science gets covered and which science doesn't get covered which then means which kind of questions are asked and which questions are not asked. And if you're doing something that looks a little bit more heroic, going and exploring these new areas and collecting brand new data that no one's ever gotten, that's different than somebody who's working in a lab and doing the long-term analysis of things that can be a lot harder to do. That's a lot less sexy in terms of the, inter the, the international appeal of this. I'd written about this a few years ago um, with a feminist studies angle on glaciers with a group here, um, with a postdoc, a graduate student, and an undergraduate. A nice collaborative team, I thought. Um, thought this was good to point out that this, this kind of, well, the manliness of conquering summits in polar regions was applying to the field of glaciology historically, if we go through that. That's what we were arguing, and there's implications then for not only who's doing the science, with only about 25% of all glaciologists who are women, and then also which types of questions, and then what type of apparatus and what this is emerging from. So we wrote this, um, went over really well, um, to put it lightly. So the, the climate denialists first picked it up and got on top of this and started coming after us quite strongly. And then that spread out all over the place. We were even attacked here in Australia. Um, so it's a big international thing. I had death threats. Um, which I not, was not prepared for in graduate school to learn how to manage death threats coming at me. I was, um, had a two-week period where every day I would pretty much get up in the morning and talk to the head of communications at the University of Oregon. Then I would talk to general counsel. Then I would call attorneys in New York and call attorneys in San Francisco and try to ne negotiate this and figure out how to manage all this with Freedom of Information Act requests coming to get everything from my email to everything. Uh, grant proposal I'd ever written to all kinds of stuff, right? You hear about this, that, that there's an attack structure that's out there. I didn't expect it to come here, but what I didn't realize is how much stronger it is in the anti-feminism world than it is in the anti-climate science world. And so the longest, most enduring, most wretched attacks on us were really the anti-feminists who were coming after us. Um, so it was quite an experience here. Fortunately, there was lots of people who were supportive of this and thought that this was important questions to raise and decent research to, to try to be doing. Um, and also I started to expose that all the things that they were putting on there about these elevated numbers, I don't even know where they came up with the numbers of hundreds of thousands of dollars for one article, that um, probably at the end of the day when I figured out all the things would probably cost maybe $2,000 to fund the undergraduate, the grad student, and the postdoc, and my time, which got no funding on that at all. But anyways, gross problems. But anyways, I think this is just an important part of this to, to mention in terms of the importance of understanding who's doing the science 
And then who gets to speak for these environments? And so what we were saying is that certain stories of manly conquest were taking over in terms of how things were represented. Um, and then that marginalized lots of people, women, local people, local stories, and different types of knowledge, like coming from the humanities. Um, and so I think those are important things to make sure we continue to think about when we see these stories of the, of the scientists going to do their work. They have to do that. The biggest thing I came away from Greenland in terms of this is, is tremendous respect for my scientist colleagues for what they're doing. I don't want to do it um, because it seems too dangerous. Uh, but I think what we also need is, this is a picture I took what I liked because it's got, you know, it's, you can see it over there, the, um, the exercise bike that, you know, this helps us relate. Like, who, there's lots of people who have exercise bikes that don't get used laying around their house. Um, there's lots of people that have a grill on their, on their deck. And so you can see those kind of things. You can see the sewer pipes down here in the background going right into the ocean. Um, you start to get to see people living their everyday lives. And I think that's what's important, um, even though there's ice all over the place. These are different types of stories that are a little less romantic. So, Third one, the laboratory. Greenland or um, we could say other places that appear in these stories and these accounts and the framings just as a, as a laboratory for others to use. Anybody see this news this summer? This was nuts, I thought. Um, so the idea is you can make a submarine that'll go around and it will and they have a little visualization that goes with this and it shows a new baby iceberg being born and it floats up to the surface and goes away here. And so um, this was an Indonesian company that proposed this and thought this would be a good idea. And it was all the discussion about it was really just to criticize whether it was technically possible or not, which I thought was interesting that they would take it for to mean that much that they would actually even investigate that piece of it because it sounds just crazy. But I guess if they're trying to tow Antarctic icebergs to Perth and Saudi Arabia, then we should think seriously about this one too. So um, anyways, this was in the news to, to think about. And I think it exemplifies the way they were thinking about Greenland and to think about the climate change problem, that they wanted to just use the Arctic. So these submarines would move around the Arctic and create these icebergs. Did they ever ask Greenlanders? Did they ever ask Norwegians? Did they ask the Sami? Did they ask the Inuit people? Did they ask? No, that doesn't matter for any of those things. So none of that appeared in their story. It was just using the northern area as a way to help prepare and um, make more ice in the world. That was the main story. So I would say this is just Greenland is a place for ice. And so there's negative implications of that, which I think you can get my thread so far. So I think we have to be careful about uh, those kind of framings. But then there's also another piece of this, which is there's whole different stories of icebergs than just climate change. I've heard of this little boat, I suspect, right? So this is one story that we don't always historically and up to the present want to just save ice, right? Sometimes ice can be a menace or, a, or something like that and disrupt things. The International Ice Patrol set up after the Titanic sank in order to watch the North Atlantic and make sure that they could keep tabs on the icebergs so that no more ships ran into ice and sank um, and killed passengers. So it's an amazing service. It's still going since 1913. It's still forecasting and finding all the icebergs and, and publicizing them. Um, they spend a lot of time in the air. They are in the boat. So this is an amazing organization. The shipping lanes, it's, um, this was an old photo, but you can see they had a lot to do, right, of protecting these shipping lanes before airplanes in particular. Um, and it's amazing. So they would broadcast the positions of icebergs and where they were in these different con um, um, quadrants that they had on there. But they also had a different part of icebergs. Again, to, to make the point here that there's more than one way of thinking about ice than just as uh, something to save as beautiful scenery. They spent decades trying to blow up icebergs because they thought, oh, one good way to get them out of the shipping lanes is to just blow them up. They even contemplated using nuclear bombs to put on the big ones to blow up icebergs to get them out of the way here. So they tried this for a long time. They covered them with carbon black. Um, they used thermite, a variety of different things. And eventually in 1960, they said, you know what? The ice wins. We can't do it. We can't blow these things up. It's not working. And even if we do sometimes break them apart, we just get lots of icebergs instead of one. And that's worse. It's, even, it's lots of risks. Because even a small iceberg can sink a ship. Um, so again, a very different kind of a story. Right about when they finished this, um, 
There's a new issue that's, that's still there that's also been back to the 19th century and, and before that, and that's iceberg scouring on the ocean floor, right? The icebergs are deep, 90% of them is under the water, and so they can hit stuff that's down there on the seafloor. The first uh, transatlantic telegraph cable was only in operation for nine months before an iceberg destroyed, and they actually spent a decade studying icebergs to figure out where to place it so that this exact thing wouldn't happen, and they couldn't even make it a year without this damage. So cables continue to have problems, and if you think I'm just talking about an old story of, ice, of uh, undersea cables from the past, this is a current map of fiber optic cables all over the world and how these are used. We tend to think that our phones are working and the internet is working off satellites. It's mostly working on submarine cables that are all over the place. Um, if you want to see, um, sorry, I had Australia on here so you could see you don't have many icebergs unless Dick Smith is back. Um, but you can see that there's a lot of cables out there um, in the world. And so if you're in a spot like Greenland, um, this makes a huge difference. So all their disruptions to fiber optic um, cables to their shore have been, in the last five years, have all been caused by iceberg damage. So they continue to feel like icebergs are a big threat to their communications with the rest of the world. So this is not just an old story. There's also other parts of these icebergs, just to keep in mind of how people are interacting with them and different types of politics and economics and interaction. And that is through um, offshore oil platforms, especially in eastern Canada, but also in Greenland, also Alaska. Um, also the Russian Arctic, um, and increasingly probably more places in the world, that they need to tow icebergs out of the way so that they don't get too close to these offshore oil platforms. Um, so there's lots and lots of iceberg towing um, all the time. And they've been doing this since the 1970s where they started developing the techniques to be able to usually, not always, usually be able to tow the icebergs. Um, it's been quite a story of the science and the technology to be able to do that. Uh, my clickers, oh no, whoa, got behind, sorry. Um, so, one of the things about these icebergs moving towards them is they can maybe have the technology in order to tow icebergs out of the way, but it still depends on the people who are there and the human decision making around what to do. So this is a, an incident from 2017 with the Sea Rose, an offshore platform off of Newfoundland in eastern Canada. And this is what the iceberg forecast looked like for the couple days here. All those lines, you, can't, you don't have to read anything to know that that's a little scary if you're these uh, platforms that are all right, man, um, right in that area, right? So, so I'm not going to use the clicker because you warned me about pointing, hitting the wrong button. So all down here is where the platforms are. Those lines are all projected drift paths of the icebergs heading right towards these areas. Um, they were concerned about this. They did some successful tows. They moved the Henry Goodrich that's there. They just towed that. It's a semi-submersible platform. They just towed it 50 kilometers away, got it out of the way so it didn't get hit by an iceberg that was coming. But the sea rose it was a war, essentially, between the onshore uh, vice president of operations and the offshore installation manager who said, this iceberg is getting too close. We're supposed to follow our ice management plan, which says we disconnect from the well and we move this boat away, right? And the onshore person said, that's really expensive. It'll take three weeks to reconnect everything um, once you do that. And so we don't want you to move. We'll, we'll tow this iceberg out of the way, even when it got to that distance right there, about 45 meters. Um, it's not ever supposed to be within a half nautical mile. So, you know, pushing whatever that is, um, pushing a, a kilometer. And it's, it's never supposed to be within that space. The platform is supposed to move out of the way. So, so for these people who are out here, for Newfoundlanders who are dealing with this kind of a thing, for thinking about the safety of the area, for having to shut this thing down in terms of losing royalties, losing jobs for a minute, um, for the company, um, but for thinking about environmental threats, all kinds of things. Um, they had a different view of the icebergs. And then, of course, there's this situation that as soon as they got through all that, then the sea rose caused the biggest oil spill in history. It's not, a very, it's not related to icebergs, but it was a storm that that happened in. 
Um, but it's quite, a, it's quite a place for thinking about these things. So when I think about the submarine that's creating these new icebergs, that's a singular kind of a story, but I think we need to broaden the way we're thinking about icebergs, bringing in all these different types of stories and make sure we're understanding the full range of how people interact with ice, um, and icebergs in particular. So another one here. I'm sorry to do this to you. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, this, this would seem outrageous, and it is absolutely outrageous. There's no doubt about it, right? This is disgusting. This was, it was fortunately right after we had left. It was in Iceland on the way back to the States when this broke, so I wasn't technically still in Iceland anymore. Um, but what I want to say is that as egregious and wretched as that act was to propose to buy a country, right, and to buy Greenland, what I want to remember is that there's other people and other groups who have long tried to extract economics and have geopolitical interests in that area and many other areas where there's ice. And so I think that's important to remember that there's other, look at this, this is another way of trying to commodify Greenland. It's a different scale, it's a whole different thing. I am not comparing this to the Trump Tower and Nuke um, or anything like that, but I do want to point out this economic aspect, right, of how we we're thinking about about these. So there's lots of these. You can get water from ice in lots of different places. Um, it's very cheap here, right? It's only $129 for a 24-pack. Um, so I'm sure you're going to switch right over and start drinking that all the time now. Um, if water's not your thing, then you could switch and get other things like beer and vodka um, and have those made from pure iceberg water. So here again, we've got this thing here where we're commodifying the ice, taking something from it, it's the purity of it, it's the age of it, we're connecting to this in some way. Um, it's clearly different than a geopolitical takeover, but it is this economizing of and commodification of the ice that I think is a different story and important. And it's valuable enough to some people that a few years ago in Chile, they, they went to a glacier and they stole pieces of the glacier and were trying to take it to Santiago to sell iceberg, sorry, glacier ice to restaurants so that they could have designer ice cubes in their drinks. Um, they got caught by the police. Earlier this year, somebody broke into a warehouse in St. John's, Newfoundland, and took all this water that was um, to be made into iceberg water. So here again, we've got um, some different stories here about the commodification and the importance of this um, about ice. Now, there's other types of, back to Greenland, um, we could think about the geopolitics that also has a long history. This was the place for the United States and the Soviet Union in World War II where they thought this is where all the big stuff was going to happen. This, is, this was the entryway between the two countries before they had long-distance missiles. So it was a race into this area to try to control it. The United States set up, built Camp Century, which was a not-so-secret secret military base in the ice. They actually drilled down inside and made all these tunnels that you can see up there um, to go in. They had a little nuclear reactor there um, in the Greenland ice sheet. Yes, in the Greenland ice sheet, they had all this um, in order to create this space. Um, they had everything down there, right? So what was the idea behind this? Well, actually what they were trying to do is get ready for this thing called Project Iceworm, um, which was this elaborate system of about 1,000 kilometers of under ice um, tunnels and train tracks in there that would have m missiles on these moving around in constant motion so that within 20 minutes they could launch them at the Soviet Union. So this was this humongous, incredible project that they had under there. So that's why they were building Camp Century. That's what the goal was there. Um, that's why they were there. And it also so happened, that's where the first deep ice core ever drilled comes from, is Camp Century. Why did they start drilling? It's not a climate story, I hate to tell you, although ice cores have become one of the quintessential items to understand past climate, but it was actually a geopolitical struggle. They didn't know how ice moved, so they started drilling into it, and then it ended up with ice cores as a result of that, um, and were able to analyze those, and that's become a tremendous part of climate science. But it was really geopolitical, geopolitical that was driving that from the beginning. Um, and it's not just in Greenland that they were doing this, this is the Vostok ice core from Antarctica that was the Soviet Union's response um, to this was they started drilling 
there as well. Um, and eventually, by the 1980s, they got the Vostok core, which is, you can see those lines on there. This is the fundamental connection between carbon dioxide and temperature um, that emerged from that core. And so that also is emerging from this tremendous structure um, and support for geopolitical operations in the polar regions. That's how they got to know ice. That's what pushed the field of glaciology forward was the military support for it and the geopolitical interests of it. Back to Greenland. This will seem like a weird photo, but I saw the legacies of this this summer. This is Dave Sutherland, the oceanographer I was with. We got to the Alulasat airport there. Nobody came to pick us up. Um, we're maybe five kilometers from town, something like that, too far to walk. So for what did, what did he do? Is he was the one who was on our logistical kind of arrangements. He picked up the phone to make a phone call. Did he call the hotel? No. Did he call a local taxi? No. He called Denver, <laughs> Colorado, because that's where the consultant is who works for the National Science Foundation who organizes all these logistics in Greenland. And so for us to get a taxi there, he makes a phone call to Colorado in the United States who then send a taxi and the taxi comes. What that showed me is the legacy of the military complex funding research, it's the same that's gonna be in Antarctica as well, right? Where you have this tremendous structure that's there to do science. It's not there to do humanities research, man. When I need something, I got nothing. I'm on my own. I gotta make my own phone calls or hike or something. That just doesn't exist. Um, so there's some discrepancies there, but it also shows the way they can have no contact with local people while they're there as well. Um, Oh, I'm gonna skip this example. Sorry, did you wanna go back to the Andes? I feel like I'm running out of time. Um, so, and the clicker won't work. There I am in an archive, finding some stories about glacier politics and economics and these huge floods that were coming through there and how they didn't want to announce them to local people because they thought that'll disrupt tourism. So, um, it was quite a story. Mining companies in control there. So, let me get to the last point that I was going to raise, um, the last kind of thing that emerged, I'll sum up quickly with this one. Some of you might have heard the funeral for a glacier in Iceland this summer. Um, this was a kind of an amazing event that they had. Um, there's a letter to the future, a plaque that was put in there. Um, these are two anthropologists from Rice University in Texas who were the main um, architects of, of doing this funeral um, and pushing it through. They had about 100 people that hiked up to the glacier. Um, and put this there. This has got amazing press um, all over the world. Um, it's still going. That article in the New Yorker just came out two days ago. Um, and they talk about these things of conquering the mountains, going through this area to get up there and put this in. This aligns, this is just a few stories here in recent weeks. Um, you can see these. This is lots of, this is what we're inundated with. This is where I started, right? About the stories about we're missing glaciers, we're losing these. Um, and I, it always makes me wonder a bit of the, the contact here and the, the lack of context in a local way. Again, these are important things to be thinking about, but they're framing the issue um, not in any kind of local ways. They're often tapping into our sensibility and our love for these remote places. I think with the funeral, um, they're also trying to tap into our own sense of mortality. I do feel like there's a reason that we love glaciers um, so much and why they're so iconic is because they're disappearing and there's something about time and there's a way for us to try to to witness these and then we have to grapple with our own loss and so the story often is when the glacier melts it's gone so we think we're confronted with our own mortality it also allows us by going to a funeral in Iceland to actually see and experience this Anthropocene uh, this climate change that's happening now, the amount of carbon emissions that go into all the people who flew there, the 100 people from Europe and the United States who went, that's a different story. Um, but anyways, I think there's some ironies built into that, but there is something about that. The deeper question for me always is, what are they trying to protect, right? So they're trying to save these glaciers in a, in a lot of ways. So we could look at Argentina, where they have a glacier law to save them. Just this summer also, everything seemed to happen this summer. Supreme Court finally validated the law that has been on the books since 2010. Um, for a very long time in terms of putting it into place. They've struggled with mining companies. This was really about, this was a, a glacier law to protect it from mining interest in this area. Um, it started with Pascualama where they said, we'll just move these glaciers over here. 
We'll take the gold out from underneath, and then we'll move these glaciers back when we're done some years later. Um, that didn't go over very well. Um, so that uh, failed, and that's what led to the glacier law that finally went into, into place there. But it's a long-standing struggle between environmental groups and mining companies. The ice doesn't have so much to do with it. It was just a way to get in and regulate mining in many ways, even though there is a water quality implication of that. Um, the story, and I think that pulls so many of these things together in terms of the politics, the economics, and the culture of it, erupted in 2017 and is still going with Argentina's most famous glaciologist, uh, Ricardo Villalba, who was indicted for doing a glacier inventory that followed the international standard on the size of a glacier, it being one hectare. But the environmental group said he should have gone smaller because in an area where a mining company went to mine, they were actually in an area with very, very, very tiny glaciers that don't show up on international standards. Um, so he's still in trouble. What that means to me is that the science is not quite enough, right? There's a cultural dimension and an economic and a political agenda dimension to why he's indicted here. It's not just about the science. If it was, he'd be fine. But it's not that. It's all these other factors. So even when we're talking about laws and science, things that should be cut and dry, I would say that the culture and the politics are still deeply embedded in those, and we can see that really well with Vialba and the case for him. Um, this also happens in places where we're trying to save ice, like in Greenland here. Um, this is the center that they want to make, mainly for tourists. It's not quite built. This is my group in the summer as we walked by. It's not quite done, um, but it's getting there. And the idea is to protect the fjord, to protect the ice that's there. How they're protecting it, I don't exactly know. Um, they want to keep out some, some kind of things. But they're really trying to save this area for people to go and see the ice, which is an amazing scenery, right? It's spectacular. Um, this is the last night I was in Greenland um, to watch the sunset from this spot. This is incredible, but I spent most of the time here with my colleague Casey. We spent, this was, I don't know, one in the morning or something like that. Um, whether it was still sunset or beginning of sunrise, I don't know. And we spent two or three hours up there talking about how to, how to experience this place and how to experience ice. We, were in, we had all this baggage with us in terms of what we were reading and our intellectualizing and things. And so we wanted to not enjoy this landscape because we felt that's not right, right? That's kind of my story in some ways, but that's not the story really I want to leave you with. We should all see these things. I mean, if we can, we should enjoy them and, and be moved and, and find this stunning and majestic. But then we also felt like we had gone to Greenland. We were part of this group of people who had gone. I don't speak Danish and I don't speak Greenlandic. That's problematic. That's not like Peru where I can speak Spanish and communicate with people. So I felt disconnected even though we were talking to locals. We had that in our mind. It was also a weird landscape with all these icebergs and the ocean. It's not a landscape that invites you in to see. It's one that repels you and makes you stand back. So I was just, I end with, with these scenes because I think it's so hard to wrap my mind. I still struggle. I can have my intellectual hat on and be critical like I have been today of the way that a lot of times that climate change news is, is presented to us. And I can see problems with that. And yet in my heart, I'm also moved by these types of landscapes. But I think in order to talk productively about climate change and move forward, we have to humanize these landscapes. We have to think about them as real people living in these places and interacting with ice in different ways who have different types of political struggles. I don't think we're getting that far along in, our, in the way we have been talking about climate change. So maybe if we can humanize more and, and have different types of stories, then that could be helpful in terms of moving the conversation going and getting different ideas. So, all right, thank you very much. That was fascinating. Thank you. I uh, read that the ice cap, we, like the Earth had the ice cap only for 20% of its age. Um, so well, when did that start or, you know, how can we correlate the glaciers with, um, with the ice cap and the, and the temperature on the surface of the Earth? For a long, you're talking about a long, long history of the planet, right? Yeah. I mean, we've had a lot of ice ages over time where there's the, with the switches between those. How far back we go um, for all these, I have, to, I have to just admit I'm not a paleoclimatologist, so I don't know the record way back there. I know that in the last, since the Holocene started 
12, 14,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, whatever, however you want to mark that period. Um, we've certainly had ice um, in lots of different places, but it fluctuates um, over time. So there's, there's been a lot of ice um, for, yeah. I'm gonna, you should ask a paleoscientist that question, really, to go back millions of years. To, I think that's what you're asking, right? Is yeah. way back, right. Sorry. Thank you. My name's Justin. Yeah, great presentation. Um, so today in the Australian media, uh, it came out that um, the Department of the Environment is refusing to use uh, the term uh, a problem when it comes to global warming because it was, uh, uh, or at least the head of the department was saying, um, in some parts of the world, global warming will actually uh, make it easier for people to live and therefore, you know, they're refusing to um, approach the framing in that term. Can you clarify, are you advocating for like a, a relativist approach to climate change? Um, and if not, then whose job is it to, um, you know, consider all the local cultural context when it comes to tackling a global problem that we have less than 10 years to, um, yeah, realistically try and do something about? Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't want to be... I don't want to be cast or say at all that this is a relative problem and that we don't need to worry about it. And lots of, lots of glaciers maybe are changing and that's normal and that's natural and we shouldn't worry about it. That is the last thing in the world I want to say. The first book that I wrote was about these glacial lake outburst floods and avalanches in Peru, mainly caused by shrinking glaciers that have killed 15,000 people since 1941. Um, that's the first thing I worked on. I saw very firsthand, very clearly, how shrinking glaciers are killing lots of people, tens of thousands of people, right? So I want to be clear about the fact that this is a huge problem. Um, I also think, I guess what I would say fundamentally, is that if we're too afraid to criticize and try to refine the way we're talking about something because it's such a big deal, then we don't start refining it. And some of the low-hanging fruit that I think could be there from a denialist to say this is a problem in the way you're talking about glaciers, glaciers always change. Glaciers, the definition of a glacier is moving ice. They are never static, and yet something about in our portrayal of them is kind of wishing for a static glacier in a weird way, right? If they started advancing again, we would be really worried like they were in the Alps in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century in the early 19th century where it was the invasion of glaciers as they were expanding. So they always move around, we would have different stories, but uh, so I just wanna be absolutely clear that I see lots of problems with this. It's not a relativist thing. I think we do need to check with locals though and look at local context to see whether it's a bad thing, who it's bad for, who's winning, who's losing in these kind of um, scenarios. So I think that's really crucial. Um, and in terms of it being a global problem, I think we absolutely have to keep going with this, but I think that, a, I think it would be useful to have different stories as well, and not just one monolithic story about shrinking glaciers, poor people who are then um, impacted. What I think often is the case is that the decisions are made in these climate summits or by global leaders, they're kind of the culprits behind this to begin with. So it's like the fox guarding the hen house in terms of how policies are happening. So I actually think if we were to just focus on social justice issues, economic justice issues in regional places in the more local area, that could work better, um, perhaps. We still need the global fight, though. People still have to do that. I'm just hoping to broaden it and put it at different scales. Does that help answer that? I mean, you, you asked me how to solve it, and I wish if I had that, then I wouldn't be, yeah. Uh, I don't know what I'd be doing, but it's a great question. Thank you for asking for the clarification. Um, hi, just to follow on from that, and uh, uh, I was wondering as you were talking about this kind of um, uh, first world western ad um, uh, attitude to things like glaciers, and it's a, I, I was wondering if it's a bit like um, the pregnant woman's belly, where um, people get upset because they come and touch the belly, and some people like it, a lot of people don't like it, but there's this kind of social kind of um, the pregnant belly is a, almost a social thing. It's society reproducing, and um, glacier regressing is a as a, um, a stand-in for climate change. Is um, a similar kind of a uh, maybe a similar kind of a reaction. Um, 
uh, and that alignment between that and also the kind of the global concern over the um, b um, burn-offs in, um, in the Amazon rainforest and uh, again kind of the, the West telling um, a, a developing country how to manage its, um, its landscape. Um, and sorry, now that I've got to this point, I'm not quite sure what the question was, um, except that there's this issue between the developing country and the developed country, and there's different levels of gaze and response, and I, I was wondering if you could talk to that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Bolsonaro just rejected all that aid, right? So the president of Brazil rejected aid to fight the forest fires, and part of me, I mean, well, I don't want to get into him, right, and, and justifying any of his decisions at all, just to put my politics on the table. Um, but I can also, like you're saying, understand that about um, other people forcing them of what to do. And I see that a lot with climate change agendas that come in and are put uh, climate change adaptation kind of things where they're offered um, millions of dollars comes in on these um, and that doesn't go in the way that the locals want that to go necessarily. So that's a different type of a scale. But I just would say that um, it's, it's tough. And I, and I do think back to your point, I mean, we do have to have some global some global level things that are happening, but we have to protect autonomy. As a, when I put on my his, history of science hat, so I'm also trained in history of science, then I see over and over and over and over again how developed countries use science as a tool in order to control, to maintain the impoverishment of people in developing or less developed countries. Right? You, you can see that, even though there's also a million good things that come out of that as well, but there's also this disempowerment that can sometimes be there even with public health campaigns, for example. Um, so I think we always have to be wary of those and be balancing those um, with a lot more local voices about who has the Faces. right and the control. Um, yeah, you talked about a lot of things, but I'll leave it at that. Um, hi, I'm Zoe. Um, I've come to a few of these talks lately um, because I feel kind of desperate and hopeless. And so um, I think it's great to be in a room full of other people who can afford to pay $25 to come out you know, on a Tuesday night. But how do we tell these stories, these kind of human stories, to people who don't already agree with this, who aren't kind of privileged enough to be able to come to listen to these talks? I mean, I think that they're the people that are the marginalised people who identify that climate change is a problem but still vote for a government that doesn't kind of have any climate policies in Australia or people who think that climate's a, what you're identifying, climate change is a problem but domestic violence is actually more important or job security if you work in the mining industry thinking about what might happen you know, if some of these policies that you don't quite understand comes in. So scientists seem to have this kind of knowledge, but then there's a gap between what they're able to tell and the stories that people, um, I guess, are accepting enough to, to act. So right. whose job is it to humanise the stories? I mean, it would be nice if... Uh, I mean, I do think that a, a, a more diverse set of stories could connect to a more diverse population in many ways, right? That if we frame this in a way of... Uh, this is beautiful landscape to save in the same way that the environmental movement has tried to do this for a long time. I think then we run into these conflicts and then we can have other groups present this as the right um, economic kind of security versus this luxury of protecting environmental areas or doing something about climate change, right? Whereas if we talk about, if we talk about the issue, for example, and this isn't a climate story, but with the issue of the sea rows and the icebergs getting close to offshore oil platforms, if we talk about that as an issue of worker safety on their jobs, people who work for a union, that's a different way of, I think, connecting. So I'm hoping that those, are, those stories could get out there. But a good example was in an airport in, in Greenland when there was just somebody who was there from the United States who was visiting um, and they heard that we were doing some research because we had this equipment and they asked a question and then when Dave came up and said he was an oceanographer studying it was like Casey the literature person and me just like get out of the way science what do you have to say and it was just this amazing moment of who gets to speak right who has the authority to do this and I think that's a much deeper cultural thing this is the way universities are funded as well right of what what's in there um, it's a, it's a big thing, this is not a simple thing, and I'm not trying to say that we should unfund science, not in the slightest, I'm trying to say that there should be many different voices in there. So I think it's a tougher thing, but I wish, I do wish when I see the, the journalist stories and when I see the media writing about it, I wish that there was a greater appreciation for more things. 
In Peru, I get asked to do interviews all the time. They're happy to hear from historians. Um, but not in the United States. No way in the world would I, that's not true. I mean, I do get asked, but it's, um, it's a different kind of a thing. So I think there's deeper cultural things about what knowledge is, is there and what's privileged, but um, I don't want to just blame journalists either. That's not the case. They're writing what's going to sell, right, and what the market wants, so it's more than that. Thanks so much. My name's Jenny, and I'm, I work at the um, Australian Museum, and I'm manager of climate change projects there. And so I think it's, it's the work of the museum to be able to get these messages out about our joint responsibility uh, within Australia to, to try and you know, change things up, but also to tell the sorts of stories that we need to hear from people in the Pacific and, and other parts of the world that are already being really impacted and, and to enable people to understand what's happening here. Mm -hmm. I think museums are really good at, at listening to, to people who wouldn't normally right. um, have a chance to be listened to and uh, we're trying to get out to rural areas and, and um, places like that, you know, Western Sydney and yeah. um, all around and to try and um, be able to connect to those audiences more effectively through, through our, mm -hmm. our efforts to increase understanding and engagement in climate change. But thanks so much for tonight. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. That's a, it's a, and it's a good, I should also say that um, in terms of, the, of a shift, because I think you're right about the, the role of museums and museum exhibits are changing, I think, in the way that this has been done, at least in what I've seen. I'll also say the IPCC, right? That's the, the international climate group. I was part of the last assessment report 2013-14. Was, I was about the only social scientist on that. It was another economist. And I spent the whole time in all of our meetings over two years just trying to justify what I did, right? And try to explain to all these scientists who were charged with talking about the human side, right? Talking about adaptation and vulnerability, but it was the natural scientists doing that, versus the one that just came out three weeks ago, the special report on oceans and cryosphere, that has equal teams of anthropologists, and there's even some historians, and there's sociologists, and there's political scientists. There's all kinds of people in the social sciences. Not enough humanities, um, but they're getting there. And so there is a huge shift that's starting, and maybe I could have said that and answer back to your question too about how to change. I think there is a shift that's already happening, and the museum is a really good example of that too. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. We might have to leave it there. Um, I would just remind everyone, we've got one more talk in the series, uh, which is by Andrew Gaynor, and the Dewey Towers are up there. Um, but please join me in thanking Mark one last time. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.